Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush, and on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we have a really special lineup. Zoe Grunewald, our new political reporter, is making her debut on the podcast. Hi, Zoe. Hi, Anoush. And we're also joined in this mega week of NHS strikes by Dr. Emma Runswick, a mental health doctor and deputy chair of council for the British Medical Association, a doctor's trade union. So, Emma, before we start talking about the strikes themselves, I did want to ask you, for the sake of our listeners who might not have been in a hospital recently, what's sort of the mood in your hospital among your colleagues and also among the patients that you're treating as well? So I work in the community. I work in community mental health team. And it is really difficult. The situation is that we can't provide the care for patients that we would want to provide to patients for a whole variety of reasons, but primarily understaffing, underfunding and lack of beds particularly to be able to escalate. So I work in mental health care. Occasionally people need to come into hospital. Occasionally people need to come into hospital against their will. It's quite difficult often to find space for them to be, particularly space for them to be locally to their family and their usual services. In acute hospitals, the situation is even worse. We're now getting recurrent reports of spillover from A&E into the corridors, including in some places in the northwest where I work, where they've allocated spaces along the corridor or doctors and nurses to nurse and treat along the corridor. So they will say, oh, such and such a patient is in corridor space 12 in a way that you would do normally on a ward. And managing that for staff is really horrible because it's not what we want to be providing to patients. It's not what patients deserve. And then for the patients receiving, it's better than nothing, but it isn't the dignified care that we would we would want them to get. And for families, it's the same. And that's a, that's a kind of symptom of backup all through the system. And it's one of the reasons that we're seeing so many problems with the ambulance service, where they can't offload their patients from the ambulance into the, into the hospital because we haven't got any space for them inside the hospital. And that's a backup from the social care crisis. So we're seeing it all through the system. Really, really difficult for patients, not fair for patients, and not fair for staff either. I mean, listeners can't see my face because this is a podcast, but really my, my face just dropped when you told me about the fact that doctors and nurses would literally be assigned to corridor patients as if that's a official allocation. It's shocking. I mean, how long have you been doing this for? Is this the worst that you've seen? it? It's definitely the worst that I've seen the health service. Um, obviously, I've been a doctor now for a few years and before that a medical student. It is continuously getting worse. 
we used to say, oh, every winter there's a crisis and now the winter never ends. The winter is happening all the time. COVID obviously was particularly a problem, but now we have COVID again with barely any of the mitigations and we have a big flu A wave and we have all of the usual winter things and we have all of the elective care that we're trying to provide and we have all of the crisis of the entirety of society ends up falling in the health service, and particularly in A&E, because we're the picking up the pieces kind of people. So everything is getting worse and therefore everything in the health service gets worse. People are leaving in large numbers. Staff are leaving. They can't, you can't manage. If you're a person, you know, if you're a nurse doing one nurse or two nurses for a ward and you go in every day and you know that's always going to be your situation, people just give up. They're like, I'm not doing this anymore. And they, and they leave. In medicine, some people are leaving for other professions, but more often leaving for other countries. We've got, we've got options to go elsewhere where the conditions are better, where the pay is better. Ireland, New Zealand, Canada, Australia. And that, of course, makes the situation worse for the people who remain. Mm. So, you know, we're on a downward spiral, which is, I think, why so many of us are being pushed to action. Emma, you spoke earlier about, you know, the pressures on ambulances. And obviously we're in a week now where we're, you know, we're seeing nurses strike today, ambulance strike as well. I know last week, Anoush, you discussed the politics of strikes in the in the last episode. And I was just wondering, Emma, you know, there seems to be a high level of public sympathy for NHS staff especially. Why do you think that is? Do you think that's always been there? Is it a hangover from COVID? Why do you think there is so much support for, you know, your your cause? I think that patients and the public understand that it's about all of us. And it really is about all of us. If we don't pay staff appropriately, if we don't give staff appropriate conditions, then we can't provide the care that we want to provide and that patients deserve. So when you see nurses out, you know that nurses care. You know that this is not a decision that people take lightly to, to take strike action. You know that they're still using derogations, keeping people safe in hospitals, in critical care, in emergency care. So people understand that that's a big decision to take and that it's related to the issues of not just fair pay, but safe staffing. Mm, I was, well, I mean, we're recording on a Tuesday. This episode will go out on Thursday. But I was this morning speaking to nurses on a picket line outside St Mary's Hospital in London in Paddington. And they were getting so much support. I mean, this is just anecdotal, but the honking of cars, and it wasn't just ambulances that were driving past them. It was just the general public, taxi drivers. I mean, it did seem to be a very warm reception to their cause. Obviously, we've seen slightly different reaction that is, has been changing towards the rail strikers. Do you think there's any chance if these strikes carry on, and of course there's every chance that they could carry on next year if the government doesn't sit down and negotiate overpay, do you think there's any chance of that wearing thin at all? And do you think, you know, because obviously patients will inevitably be affected by this, do you think there's a chance of, of them changing their mind about it? I hope not. I think that the situation is fairly obvious to most that we're being pushed into strike action. Pat Cullen, who's the General Secretary of the RCN, has quite openly said that they would call off the strikes if if there were only negotiations. So not even an offer, only mm. negotiations. So if you're in that situation, it's fairly obvious where the blame is. The government absolutely could stop these strikes at any time. They could stop them at any time. It's in their gift to negotiate with the nurses, with ambulance staff, with doctors. Junior doctors started talking about action over pay in the summer. We asked them to come and negotiate with us. We did a, a countdown up to the end of September and then on the 1st of October we said okay now we're now we're in a position where we have to start preparing for a ballot 
they've had all of that time and they won't talk to us about pay. So when you when you face in that situation, I think the public can see where the blame goes. And I'm hoping that that will continue as nurses take action, as paramedics and other ambulance staff take action, and potentially as junior doctors take action as well. So what, what comes next then? So where are you at with striking? Obviously, you're, you're intending to ballot in January, but say that goes ahead. What can we expect? So the ballot will be open for uh, six weeks. We're having a long period of ballot because we're expecting there to be postal strikes in that time. And because doctors have often quite chaotic lives, there'll be a, a rotation point in that period where we all move jobs or many of us move jobs. So we've we've given ourselves lots of time. And then if there is sufficient support for strike action, then we might have strike action in early March time. All of the options for what that strike action might look like are on the table. And it will largely depend on what our members are willing to support, how many have voted, what the turnout is, whether the government are willing to negotiate at that point. We'll amend what we're doing in order to make sure that we have the greatest impact in terms of our negotiations whilst having minimum impact on patients and our own members. So this is really when the nurses will step up for you as doctors are stepping up for nurses and the strike days that we've had recently, which is something that the nurses were were telling me about. They were remembering the doctor's strike in 2016. I wonder if you take any lessons from that strike. It was very bitter confrontation between the doctors and Jeremy Hunt, who is now in the Treasury. Yeah, I just wonder whether or not, you know, there's anything that sort of you think that the doctors would do differently. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's loads to learn from 2016, which was a dispute about hours and safety issues primarily. Some of that had pay elements within it, normally as mechanisms to ensure that doctors weren't overworked. So if you go beyond a certain number of hours, it then becomes very expensive to have a doctor in work. And that's deliberate. It's to disincentivise unsafe practices. But it was not really about pay. And we got out of that contract that was imposed upon us. So an improved version of that contract compared to what was initially offered, but nevertheless an imposed contract that we continued being in negotiations over until 2018, at which point they then offered this multi-year pay deal, or in fact, you know, wanted a multi-year pay deal to try and contain their costs. I think there's lots of things to learn about how we were organised and not organised at that time, about our strategy in talking to to the media, um, in managing how the media responded to us. I think lots of doctors misinterpreted what media outlets said as public opinion, which wasn't the case. We had lots of public support throughout the action in 2016. There's lots to learn internally about what we did wrong. We often cancelled action at quite short notice. We didn't always have the best communication with members. So there's loads and loads of things that we have changed internally in the BMA to be better prepared for industrial action if and when we need to take it. And I think also members are better prepared now for what that really means, for what industrial action really means. All trade union members, when they take a day of strike action, lose a day of pay. Mm. And we're now beginning to talk about saving up individually, but also we've we've put on a strike fund for the first time ever. We're, we're growing a strike fund that the BMA has never had before. So lots and lots of changes have happened since 2016 and I'm hopeful that doctors will be able to see that and have confidence in in the action that they're taking and know that they can have an impact. Emma I wanted to ask 
about how much support you think you have from doctors across the industry. Obviously, you know, your your members, you're going to put it to a ballot, you're going to actually see. But do you have a sense of actually how widely supported this is within the medical community? Yeah, the mood has definitely shifted. It's been really interesting as we've come out of the pandemic, or certainly out of the, the pandemic being a news story. Obviously, we've still got COVID in hospitals. But as that shift has occurred, the realisation that despite all of the claps, all of the applause and all of the, you know, being lauded as heroes, we've had pay cut after pay cut after pay cut. And this year, you know, in real terms, approximately a 10% pay cut. This year alone, a whole month for free this year compared to last year. And as the cost of living rises and people begin to struggle, that really begins to, to grate, really begins to grate at you. And that anger's been growing for a while around all of the things about staffing, about conditions, now about pay as well. And then there's there's a, a new element of hope, which is that maybe we can do something about this. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can take a stand. And I mean, all of the healthcare professions are beginning to come to this same conclusion. It's got so bad, we have to do something and we can do something about it. Nurses are taking action, paramedics are taking action, we're planning to take action. And absolutely, I feel that we've got very clearly majority support for that in the profession not just amongst junior doctors but also support from general practitioners consultants specialists who are expressing their support for for junior doctors preparing to take action i'm very hopeful we understand that ballot thresholds are often difficult and we're working to to manage that and to to make sure that we get the turnout but i've got absolutely no concern that we're going to have majority support oh really you think you're going to pass the ballot threshold yeah so the question will be will we have turnout Mm. and all of the problems that are associated with with running a postal ballot i've got no concerns about majority support for for action that's so interesting because i think the public perception of doctors although it is very positive and that they are sort of overworked it's not necessarily that they're underpaid i think people often sort of assume that doctors are quite well paid but you know from what you're saying, there's no doubt that your colleagues would want to to strike for for the reasons that you've been laying out in this interview. I mean, are there people struggling that you know who are at your level? Yeah, I mean, I think people are often misinformed about how doctors are paid. So, mm. um, junior doctors are paid as little as fourteen pounds an hour. Wow, mm. and that's in the context of doing long hours, forty hours a week. Normally, is our, our full time forty hours a week, nights, weekends. And obviously nights and weekends come with additional payment, as you might expect them to, and that boosts the salary overall. But it is £14 an hour, right? And at the point you've done extensive further training, you know, over a decade of further training, operating near autonomously, doing very complex procedures, major surgery, being responsible in, in, in my sector in mental health for using the mental health factor to, to detain people who are very, very seriously unwell, running your own clinics, all of those kinds of things. The medical registrar who who runs the hospital overnight, who leads the crash team overnight. Those people at the very top of the, the junior doctor scale are earning £28 an hour after you know more than a decade of experience. And all that money spent on your education as well. And we've got huge amounts of mandatory cost. So at the same time as our pay has fallen in real terms, probably I should explain that, so our since 2008, our pay has fallen in real terms by over a quarter, 26.1%. So we're you know, a quarter less well paid than we were in 2008. And at the same time, tuition fees, university fees have gone up, grants have disappeared. So 
doctors graduating now often have between 80,000 and 100,000 pounds of student debt because the NHS bursary in the final year isn't enough to live on. Normally less than 6,000 pounds for for a year to live on or, or not to live on. People then take on additional credit card overdraft debt which you're paying back all the time on your 14 pounds an hour. You're paying on top of that your GMC fees, so your professional registration, your indemnity insurance. We have to pay for our exams. We have to pay for our portfolio access. Again, all, all of these are mandatory. We pay for our Royal College membership. Again, it's mandatory. So lots of additional costs come on top of that. We're moved every six months because we're rotational trainees. So they move us between hospitals or between jobs. That often necessitates you to move house. So then you've got all of the additional costs of moving house, sometimes twice a year. Mm. So that £14 an hour, or if you're kind of in the middle, you know, mid-range, £19 an hour, rapidly, rapidly dissipates. Mm. We've now done a survey of the positions that people are, are in. We're finding that about half of us are struggling to pay mortgage or rent, mm. a similar amount struggling with heating and other bills. Three in ten of us using overdrafts on a regular basis, month after month, or credit cards month after month, not being able to pay off that debt, people being trapped in that cycle. We know that why that is, is because our pay's been cut by a quarter, mm. you know, in, in real terms, and everything else keeps going up. Emma, at this moment in time, would you recommend to someone that they should become a doctor? Because everything you've said then is so, it sounds so challenging, it sounds so difficult. I mean, it you know, being a doctor is one of those things. People are so proud of it. You know, the, the community love doctors. But, you know, it almost sounds like it's it's not worth it, the kind of the toil it takes on, on those practitioners. I find it very difficult because I really love the work I do. If I didn't really love this work, I wouldn't be fighting for it. Because you're right, there's so many downsides. There's loads of downsides. But I work in older adult mental health at the moment. I get to go in and see people who are really acutely psychotic, lost their connection with reality. And the things that I do and, and that my team do to assist those people, put them back in contact with their families, they can function again in society, they can go back to playing bridge or, or bowls or whatever it is, having been absolutely terrified for their lives, thinking that people are out to get them, can't leave their homes, right? Or they've been suicidal and then suddenly they want to live again. Those are the things that we do in my job. And I love that work. It's complex work. It's good work. It's worthy work. I feel good about it. The fact that I can't do it as well as I want to, because we don't have the staff to do it, makes it really difficult to recommend, even though it's really good work. And I think quite a lot of us would say that about you know, other aspects of medicine. You know, We love the jobs that we do. That's why we do them. You know, they're not easy jobs to do. They're not easy jobs to get into. They're often long hours and difficult. We know we all signed up for that. What we didn't sign up for was not being able to provide to patients what we want to provide and continually facing pay cuts and difficulties in doing that struggle. I'd struggle to recommend it at the minute, even though I love it. Mm. Well, that, that brings me on to a question that I, I'm particularly interested in at the moment, which is, do you feel that, and this is sort of goes beyond the strikes, but do you feel that patients' relationship with the NHS is changing because of the increased challenges in delivering the care that you'd like? I certainly think people have less trust in our ability to do well by them. Right. I think m- most patients and family members understand the difficulties that we're facing. But I mean, speak to any GP and they tell you the abuse that their staff get, particularly the receptionists mm. on, on the phones. We see a little bit of that. In secondary care, 
but not as much as in primary care. So it is it definitely is shifting. And with the ambulance difficulties, we're seeing more and more people take their own journey to hospital and mm-hmm. um, you know, manage their own conditions. We've had reports in the press about increasing numbers of people taking private health care. So, yeah, I think, that, I think the relationship is changing. I don't think it's a good thing. Mm. You've obviously spoken a little bit about how the negotiations are, are going so far and why you've got to where you are. How do you think the government is going to respond how do you see your relationship playing out in the next year? And, and with that, we should probably talk a little bit about the comments from the Shadow Health Secretary as well. What's your view on the government's position and I guess the opposition's position as well? So the way that the negotiations are going at the moment is they're not. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they're not negotiating with nurses. They're not negotiating with junior doctors. We've written to them multiple times over multiple health secretaries now. They just are not interested in talking about pay and kind of the broader retention issues. So for doctors, that includes pensions issues, particularly for senior doctors, particularly for senior doctors. We've got issues with pension taxation. So they're not really looking to solve those problems at the moment. And that's why we're being pushed into strike action. So it's a mechanism by which you force your issue for the government, for your employer, into the public eye. There's benefits to that. You make it difficult for the government not to negotiate with you. I'm hopeful that they will see some sense. The splits in the Conservative Party at the moment around the nurses' action, I think is promising. Some of them are seeing that it might be a good idea to negotiate. Dr Dan Poulter has has made some really, I think, helpful comments about negotiating with the nurses. So it might be that the position changes from the government. We have to be hopeful and keep our door open. As Steve Barclay would say, door always open. We know that that's not true, but you know our door always is open. We do want to talk about pay. We don't want to be having to take strike action because it's not good for us to take strike action. Members lose pay when they take strike action. I'll, I'll lose pay when we take strike action. But I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for negotiations. The opposition has been a, a bit more interesting because we're not. I'm not really sure why the shadow secretary for health. Mr Streeting has, has chosen to pick a fight with us because there's loads of things we agree on. We want better care for patients. There's not a doctor in the country that thinks, oh, I think care should be worse. Mm. Right? <laughs> the, the idea that, you know, the, the comment, something for nothing culture in the NHS, I thought, wow, I've got no idea. Mm. And he's, he calls out some of the things that we are frustrated about. And I think, I think West Streeting is, is looking to appear serious by appearing tough. But being tough and mean and making you know, blatantly untrue comments, something for nothing culture, is not a way to appear serious. The way to appear serious is, is to have solutions for problems. And we've, we've got multiple concerns about his solutions at the minute, his, his proposed solution. Recruit more medical students, there's loads of problems with that. First of all, we haven't got the capacity in universities or in clinical placement systems for the number of medical students that he's looking for. We haven't got the number of academics we would need. We haven't got the physical space in lecture theatres we would need or in anatomy labs. We haven't got simulated patients in the numbers that we would need. We haven't got physical GP space to put students in general practice to learn in the way that we would want them to. So unless you manage to expand capacity in the NHS, you can't expand the capacity for students. Then there's a problem of what do you do with them when they've graduated? So medical school gets you uh, you know, a newly qualified doctor. 
It doesn't get you a consultant or a GP. So you have to manage your postgraduate training, where we currently have bottlenecks because there isn't funding for the statutory education bodies, Health Education England, to have places. So we've got massive shortages, for example, in radiology. We don't have enough radiologists. And yet we've got hundreds of people wanting to be radiologists who can't get into radiology training because there aren't enough training places. You've got to manage postgraduate training. You've got to manage the retention issues. You've got to think about pay. You've got to think about pensions. You've got to think about who is training these people. If it's consultants and GPs, you've you've got to keep them in the profession, currently retiring in large numbers. Because if they take on additional work, for example, teaching, they get a tax bill because of the relationship between pension taxation and the NHS pension scheme. That means they're often paying to work. If you take on extra work, you lose pay because of the tax bill. So this is not a serious plan for fixing the problems in the NHS now. It's not even a serious plan for fixing the problems in the NHS in the 10 years it it would take you to to train from, you know, person fresh out of school all the way through to being a GP. It's got lots of missing elements. We would love to talk about those issues with the opposition. We would absolutely love to talk about how are we going to solve retention problems? How are we going to make sure we've got increased capacity in the future? To kind of pretend that our our concerns are because we don't want good care for patients, I think is um, pretty disappointing. Mm -hmm. That was going to be my question. Have you actually spoken to him since those comments? Have you fed into any of Labour's thinking about their health policy at all? Well, we've written to him. Mm -hmm. So we will see how this develops. As I say, our doors are open. We want to be inputting into policies. We want to be helping because we all want our health service to be better because we, want to all, we all want to provide good care to patients. We all want to be in a situation where we're not short-staffed. So there are solutions here, and we're happy to help people of you know, whatever political party to find those solutions. We're happy to help Steve Barclay, we're happy to help Will Quince, we're happy to help West Street in any of these people in Scotland. You know, we're having negotiations on a regular basis with the Cabinet Secretary up there. In Wales, the same. So... You know, we'll work with anybody. We're, we're happy to, to see people who are keen to solve problems with us. We're always disappointed when people think that they can yeah, appear tough. Mm. Does this make you feel pessimistic about the idea of a Labour government? Because obviously we do have a Labour-run government in Wales and there are NHS staff striking there. And then we have these, these plans that you say are a, a little bit thin from the Shadow Health team. Mm. I think our position is that it's always better to have a government who will negotiate and the noises from the Labour team are, are positive about negotiations in a way that the current government are not. But you have to judge every every government on its policies and on, on its attitude. And we'll see. Labour Party aren't in power at the moment. Mm. It's quite difficult to comment, isn't it? OK, well, this brings us nicely onto the second section. So please stay with us for that, Emma. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth. Featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. <laughs> Thanks, Zoe. That was your first You Ask Us and you That's absolutely good. nailed it. <laughs> good. Um, so our question this episode is from Grant, who recently had to take his daughter to A&E, he told us, and said that they only, in inverted commas, had to wait six hours because they got there early. So he's obviously got the NHS on his mind. He's asking, with the NHS in such a state, after the Conservatives have slowed funding per year for it, is there a reason Labour or the Lib Dems don't attack the government harder on the NHS? Is it because there is a fear of sounding critical of the NHS itself? I think this is a really interesting question because Labour has, as we've discussed in the in the first section and also on many previous episodes of this podcast, Labour has had to walk quite a tightrope on the strike issue, which may have blunted its attack on the state of the NHS at the moment. What do you think, Zoe? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that Labour hasn't been critical of the Conservatives over the NHS. I think historically it's been one of Labour's kind of great attack lines because, you know, Labour is the party of the NHS and the Conservatives historically don't tend to have the, the better reputation when it comes to managing the NHS. So, but I think what this what this listener is, is getting at is that Labour have been kind of pretty shtum about their response to the NHS. And, and over the past year, they have been more upfront about what they would do to deal with some of the issues in the NHS. But I think there is a political element to this, which is that when you're in opposition and you want to attack the government, you need to be willing to say what your solutions would be, because otherwise the government will come back and say, all right, well, you've identified the problem. What would you do? And I think we're approaching election time. It's not really strategic for Labour to fully lay out their cards as to what they would do. They have mentioned some things and obviously Emma spoke about some of the options they presented earlier and and the challenges that they might present. But Labour are kind of not revealing their hand too much at the minute. And I think that's deliberate. The other thing is that, as we we said, this is a really complex issue. And, you know, there's real problems with the NHS, you know, um, staffing, with um, crumbling infrastructure, you know, real problems. And these aren't going to take a quick fix. And I think some of the things that Labour might want to introduce might not necessarily be very popular. They might, you know, they might still be kind of thinking about them, still working them out. So I think also it doesn't make sense for them to to go in so hard on the Conservatives about the NHS because they're not that willing to reveal what they'd want to do, I think. So I just think it's a really politically complex issue. Labour want the public to think the NHS is safe with them. And realistically... It's just it's difficult for them to, to prove that at that moment in time. So I, I think I think that's what this listener is, is getting at. OK, that's interesting. There's a hint there that they might be planning some reforms that might not necessarily be 
as popular with the public as you'd think Labour policy on the NHS might be. I mean, I noticed at party conference, you know, usually the NHS, and obviously Keir Starmer talks about his family working in the NHS and how it sort of runs in his blood. And that's usually the applause line. But there are a lot of applause lines for fiscal responsibility as well. So you can tell that they don't want to commit very much spending towards it. But then there's also a danger the other way. I remember when Ed Miliband was deeply criticised for, and it was sort of one of those kind of briefings that you weren't quite sure where it had come from, that he was weaponising the NHS against the Tories. And that must be something that winds you up, Emma, as as a doctor and you and your colleagues, that the NHS is often used as a political football, or maybe you don't think it's used enough by (laughs) the people who ought to be holding the government to account. Hmm. It's difficult because the three main political parties in the UK, so thinking about Labour, Conservative and Lib Dem, obviously other parties available, uh, particularly in other parts of the country. But the the three parties who have been in recent government in Westminster, none of them have a a clean record on the NHS. So if you think about, we put our, our our pay restoration claim starting in 2008, because that was the beginning of austerity and pay cuts in the public sector for doctors, but but also for a variety of other workers. That started under a Labour government. The Labour government also introduced things like PFI, private financing of capital spend in the NHS. And some hospital trusts uh, are feeling the devastation of that still now. We then had coalition government, Conservative and, and Lib Dem together. So this is not a particularly necessarily a, a clean party political issue. Mm. I think we're hearing quite a lot about honest debate. You know, is the NHS sustainable? I think that's potentially some sign that there might be, as Zoe describes, unpopular solutions. You know, we're hearing in Scotland the discussion about, well, you know, should people with with more means contribute to care? To which our obviously our, the BMA position is absolutely not. We are very, very committed to providing a free at the point of use healthcare system. But you're hearing the murmurs of that. And I think we all need to be nervous and alert to that. The issue about having a political football NHS is that every time there's something new, a new government, a new minister, we get another set of reorganisations. <laughs> and I mean, we've we've been through several since I started medical school. And the latest round of that is the integrated care boards in, in England. Yeah. Every time we spend substantial amounts of money and time working out how we're going to n- newly be organised. And... None of them ever appear to bring more staff or more funding to the patient front line. And there's a constant attack on managers and admin staff who make our jobs possible. I don't want to be one of you spending my time ordering stationery or making sure that our IT software is up to date or ensuring that the chairs are all functional or that there is food in the you know you know or that there's food the for patients your face says that you've had to do this just, yeah and that's what happens if you if you're constantly attacking you can have all of the logistical support for frontline staff is very very necessary and that's under constant attack particularly in reorganization times but you know if you don't have all of that stuff there then your computer doesn't load for 15 minutes and you're spending ages trying to look for results. And the pod system, which is the kind of tubes that we send tests through in, in a hospital, breaks down on a regular basis. And you can't find the things that you need. So all of that stuff is very, very necessary. And because it's not very obvious to a patient when those things go wrong, and, and because people aren't, those people end up being political footballs a lot mm. and, and don't have the protection that frontline professions do 
because people people see us. It's a constant struggle being in the midst of that. Would we like long-term solutions, you know, well-planned healthcare? Of course we would. Mm. But the political system doesn't make itself the best at long-term workforce planning in particular. Nobody wants to commit to spending over a long period of time. Nobody wants to commit to things that you know they're not going to be in control of, they might not be in government for, or indeed things that require quite a lot of investment up front. That's one of the problems with PFI. Mm. Do you think that's the issue then, really? It comes down to Labour not wanting to announce funding? I, I think Starmer and Starmer's Labour government want to be seen as very that they think everything through they're very pragmatic they're consequential and they're measured and I think anything that's coming don't know what that is but anything that's coming for the NHS they're going to really want to make sure it's watertight and I yeah I think I agree with what Emma said I think you know the long-term planning trying to deal with the complexities of what's going on in the NHS it just makes that more difficult. So I think that's why they're slightly holding back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, really interesting. Well, thank you so much, both of you. That was a great discussion in a week where I'm sure our listeners will be really hungry for this level of detail. And hopefully we can speak to you again soon, Emma. Thanks for coming on. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, my colleague, Zoe Grunewald, and our guest, Dr. Emma Runswick. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and May Robson. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to leave us a nice review and submit a question to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.